Well, I can see you have good taste. This is the one. I'm just here to make sure you don't shake his hand and take his fingers. I'd love to hear this. I don't know if I feel you full of any more confidence, you'll burst. This whole concept is deep. It's abstract expressionist. What the hell does that mean? It must mean something. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you're just supposed to experience it. We want to find things for ourselves. We want to feel. Celebrities make me shy. Pull back the curtain and take your seat. Welcome to Mad Men Men, the weekly show where we discuss a show that used to come out weekly. Each week, we take a close look at an episode of the AMC series Mad Men, which ran from 2007 to 2015. We gear our conversation around the conversation the show is having about gender, the patriarchy, and of course, having some wine with your spaghetti. What else would you have? Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. John, you don't need a co-host. You're 32 years old. But uh, there, there is somebody I have to, to introduce here. But, uh, you know, normally I, I say his name and with a little pithy comment. But instead, I, I want his introduction to be more of a feeling, a mood. So here we go. Okay. Will Ashton, exotic dude. That's right. It's Will Ashton, the exotic dude. What up? It's me. I'm back. That wasn't, that wasn't a jingle. That was a song. Mm. Oh, yeah, okay there you go. That. It's a feeling. Um, uh, Mike couldn't make it this week because he had to go pee pee and just disappeared into the, into the park. And then Will and I had to, of course, not pick up our trash. We had to get out of there quick. Yeah, I was betrothed. I was disturbed <laughs> by... I you said betrothed. <laughs> no, I was disturbed. Uh, I was, uh, uh, infuriated by their, their littering habits. Like, Don throwing that beer can, like, bad, but it's like, whatever. It was, he was being a man. Betty well, just he, like he, that's like how the people were back then, man. That sure, I'm not saying, yeah, that's uh, you know, it's reflecting the times. I get that. It's just still like, man, just could not give uh, a dang or a heck about littering. Now, will uh, on that topic, I, I I have just one question: Are we rich? I'm certainly not rich. I can't speak. That for is, you. that's the central question of this week's episode, isn't it? The gold violin, an episode about materialism and possessions and whatnot. Uh, I'm rich in your company. I guess I can say that. Well, so that's nice of you to say, even though it's incorrect. Um, yeah. So this week we're talking about the gold violin. We're on season two, episode seven. And this episode aired in September 7th, 2008. Look at that. 14 years later, we're still talking about this show. How about that? Now, this episode was directed by Andrew Bernstein who did, it's so funny because I, so the last episode uh, Andrew Bernstein directed was Flight One, but before that he directed Babylon, which is a movie that you saw last night also called Babylon. Yes. Um, he directed, sorry, I, I need, I'm talking all over the place. Sure. He directed the episode of Mad Men Babylon. Right. He did not direct the movie Babylon directed no. by Damien Chazelle. Right. Yeah. Um, Damien Chazelle yeah. is the filmmaker behind Babylon, a film that uh, you and I have seen uh, quite recently. That's right. And uh, yeah, so Bernstein has returned for, I believe this is his third episode now. And I think you liked Flight One, uh, last episode he did in season two. Yeah, that was, uh, I think, one of my favorites from the season so far. And I'm disappointed that's the one episode so far this season I wasn't able to discuss. That's right. Now, this episode uh, has a lot of writers attached to it. You might have noticed in the opening uh, credits, uh, you have Jane Anderson, uh, Andre Jacques Menton, Maria Jacques Menton, and Matthew Weiner. 
And so they're all, of course, um, well, Jane Anderson, I don't think uh, we've, we've seen an episode written by them yet, but uh, everyone else here, Andre Jackman and Maria Jackman, they are, of course, uh, longtime writers of the show, uh, along with, obviously, Matthew Weiner. I think this is Jane Anderson's first time writing an episode, and I think the only episode they write this season, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> The Gold Violin. Mm-hmm. This uh, one of the higher rated episodes of season two in terms of viewership. It's like at the upper tier. It's not the highest rated, but it's up there. And uh, it's also considered by some people to be one of the best episodes of the whole season. Uh, a lot of people look at the uh, the season as a whole. A lot of people like more in the liner camp or like Maiden Forms, the best one. Uh, other people are like, nah, it's the gold violin. And then you have a few other people who would look, would take like uh, Mountain King, uh, I think, uh, or Meditations in an Emergency, which are the ones toward the end of the uh, season. For my money, I think Gold Violin is a really good episode. What do you think, though? Yeah, no, I was a pleasant surprise. I mean, I know uh, before I watched it, you were saying that I was going to enjoy this episode, presumably because it's so Sal-centric. Well, it's a great episode for both of us because it's Sal-centric and it's Ken-centric. That's true, yeah. It's it's your favorite character and my favorite character having a will-they-won't-they. Will-they-won't-they, could-they-should-they eat some spaghetti, if you catch my meaning. Um, uh, share yeah. some sauce if you, if you catch my, <laughs> yeah, well, there, there's uh, some contention about this because I know that the, I think Weiner and the, the actor who plays Sal, um, what I think his name is Brett Blatt, uh, Brat, Brett, 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 I, yeah. <laughs> I always mess up his name. I apologize. Who? I think um, it's quite, Bat. yeah, I was gonna say, and I think he's quite good on the show. I don't think he gets enough credit for his performance. I, I, I feel it's so intricate and so like thoughtful and how it's presented and like i think even uh uh in the madman carousel book they kind of break this down a little bit in a way that i was glad to see where it's like it's it's such a thoughtful performance in a way that like as for as good as these scripts are i feel like he brings so much to that character that makes him feel a little bit more fleshed out and i think that's so central to why i i think he's such a fascinating character and i feel the show is uh, it's missing so many opportunities to make him a contemporary for uh, for Don Draper, in the sense that like they're both men that have to kind of present themselves in a certain way, have to kind of hide a key part of their identity, feel that they're not quite among the people that they uh, socialize with and work with, but also in this case, like I, I feel like Sal is at once like more confident in himself and even less confident in himself as far as like who he can be and who he is. And I just find that I, I think in this episode it really plays out in a kind of melancholic and kind of uh, bittersweet way. But I, I really like uh, what he brings to that performance in, in this episode and any episode with him, really. Well, sure, he's more confident. He has he, he has Kitty, right? And Kitty is a character who his marriage to her he can use as uh, a suit to dress up in, very similar to the skin that Don wears. Like, like I guess to what you're implying right do you mean like you know, a beard like that kitty's his beard is that what you're implying no i the idea of like how don uses his suit he uses the car like a lot of characters they use possessions in order to mask who they really are that's the main theme of this episode right uh, don feels that if he gets the cadillac right that it's going to propel him into the upper echelon of society and people aren't going to really see him for who he really is that's why the episode starts with somebody coming up to him in that flashback which uh, i'm curious what you thought of and is like you're not really don draper that's what haunts him 
is that somebody's going to see who he really is. So he has to constantly use wealth and status and power to hide that. And that is what Sal is doing with Kitty. He is using the facade of this marriage, somebody he clearly genuinely cares about, in order to hide his true feelings. And so that to me is like what makes his character really compelling as to what you're saying, not the inverse of Don at all, but really just a parallel to Don's story. You see the the similarities between them and you see the contrast in ways that are really compelling. That's why a lot of people say that the thing that makes Mad Men such a, an enduring show, one that maintained its popularity over time, is that you really care about the secondary characters or even tertiary characters, sometimes as much as you do the main characters. And that's, I think, the uh, the, the secret sauce to, to this show, Will, would you, would you say? Indeed, that is the secret sauce. Sal's secret sauce, as my screen name has been for this episode. Um, Sal's special yeah. sauce. Yeah, yeah. But, sorry. No, no his yeah, secret sauce. The secret's not out quite yet. Yeah, that's true. Um, but yeah, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think... There's a lot to discuss here. And you want to, you were asking me about uh, my feelings on that flashback you were saying? Well, before that, I, I got to confess something to you, Will. I got to mm. confess something here. Oh, so a, a big thing in this episode is the Rothko, right? They go into the office to get a sneak peek at the, the painting and everything. Yeah. And there, there's this moment where Ken and Sal are looking at it and, and Ken kind of nails the appeal of abstract expressionism, right? Which is... You're not really supposed to explain it. There's no brochure that you can read. You know, right. it's a it's a feeling, right? And when I was watching this episode for the first time, like you know how I, you know how I like to do this show. I mean, I I like to watch these episodes, especially in maiden form, and I just like to keep pausing it and taking down notes, right? And then after the episode's over, I I start reading a bunch of stuff about it, and I start researching every little thing because you know that's that's fun for me. But, I, you know, I decided to do something a little different just for this episode, something a little different. And I didn't take any notes. I just experienced it. I just experienced the episode. So there'll probably be a bunch of things. There were things that like I was watching the episode and I was like, oh, I hope I remember to bring that up. And, you know, I'm sure some things will fall through the cracks. But, yeah, you're, I didn't read Mad Men Carousel this week. So you're, you're on your own there, Will. You'll be able to lie, actually, about like things being your idea versus, you know, Mad Zoller's site. Mm-hmm. So have fun with that. Um, okay. I know you would never uh, do that for real, of course. No, yeah, but I was wondering, and and it was one of the main things I wanted to ask you, so I'm glad you kind of uh, got the ball rolling here. Uh, I, I'm assuming that that whole conversation related to Penny is kind of similar to Matt Weiner's relationship to the show and how he kind of sees what he wants his audience to take away from it. Do you think that's true, or do you think there's some extra layers to that? I think that's valid because... That is a, a consistent theme in this episode is how Weiner seems to view the rational, self-interested person being different from the genuine artist. We've talked about this a bunch in the show. There was the episode with the Belgelie lipsticks experiment, right, where Peggy comes up with a basket of kisses. And we talked about how she's able to separate herself as an artist because she is an observer. She's able to observe what others are doing and just sort of experience things rather than being a participant in the consumerism of it all. And that is what kind of makes her an artist. That kind of echoes into this episode. Uh, This episode also echoes a lot, by the way, 
for for those who think young. Lots of direct connections because Martinson's Coffee was brought up in that first episode. We see that Duck has been laying the groundwork for this pitch for a long time. They hired Kurt and Schmidt, Schmitty, right, to come back. Uh, Don hired them in the first episode, yeah. kind of as freelancers, I think. And then now they're they're coming back, of course, to do their whole thing. They've been working on this for a while. But to what you're saying, the Rothko scene is so key in analyzing the difference between an artist, like somebody who has something honest to say. So that's striking back to the episode where Ken, right, wrote the short story that was uh, 5G. And it was referenced in this episode when he's talking to Sal. And Sal brings up that short story that people were jealous of, the one about maple syrup, you know, whatever. And in that Rothko scene, we see the different types of people who watch a TV show or listen to a song or experience anything that is artistic or creative. You have the person who's running around looking for the brochure, which is Harry Crane. And you have the person who is just sort of like, doesn't get it. It's like, oh, smudgy squares. That's interesting. So that's Jane. And then you have, you know, the person who doesn't engage with it at all, which is Paul, right? Uh, who's not willing to take the risk. You have Dale. We don't even see Dale. I thought Dale was fired. I forgot Dale was like even a thing. He's the kind of character. He's one of the writers, but we never see him. He just shows up, you know, uh, in, I think once or twice in season one, shows, a, shows up again in season two in the first episode, and then that's it. We hear about him, though, in this episode, and he's neither an artist or a kind of like numbers guy like Harry. He's just like a fraud, basically. Um I mean, I don't know if you're a Dale supporter, but yeah, I, I think he kind of sucks. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no. And then last you have Sal and Ken. You have two actual artists. And I think that's where their companionship, their genuine connection comes from. The fact that there's no ego in it. There's no sort of, they're trying to get one up on the other person. They are experiencing something together. And Sal kind of looks at it and he's like, he's just trying to find the meaning of it. He's not trying to shortcut it. He's an artist. Like He just wants to understand a different artist. And then you have Ken, who is able to just hit the nail on the head and have that dialogue with Sal. It kind of reminds me of the Mad Men Men podcast, <laughs> the Cinemaholics podcast, where it's just two guys just trying to figure out what what's going on with this thing we just watched. Um, yeah, no, I think that that's super intentional on Matthew Weiner's part. Yeah, it's easy for me to... Uh, in a sense, kind of compare it to something like Sopranos, which obviously we've said before, Weiner worked on that show. And that's a show where, especially in the later seasons, when Weiner came into it, it's meant to be a very sort of like cerebral and psychosis-based show where I think, you know, it it, it is supposed to be kind of analogued and kind of dissected in many ways, but you're also supposed to kind of experience it and let the, the feelings of it just kind of come through. But uh as far as like you were talking about your process for me, I'm very much, especially cause I'm watching this for the first time. I'm just like watching it, experience it as it happens. And then I kind of go back and I'm like, okay, reading about it. Like, okay, was, what was what this really saying? Like what, what are people's interpretation of these events? How is that happening? Especially with, uh, you know, Zoller Sice's book. That's something I find very key to my enjoyment of the show. And, and also obviously with our conversations on this podcast, we can kind of have a dissection of these and kind of grow to appreciate an episode like we did last week or kind of have some more critical things to say about or just kind of appreciate what's going on here and what he's trying to say. But yeah, I think it's uh, 
I don't know. I think there is something to be said about how with that painting, he is kind of looking at the show from now on the second season and allowing himself to be like, okay, like obviously he has like these very lofty critical things to say, but I think there is a part of him that's also kind of wondering, like, you're also supposed to be very like evoked by this. You're supposed to kind of just feel it before you're thinking about it. And I feel like that's something that like the other characters in the office, when they're seeing the pain, they're so caught up in like trying to like figure out what it is. Whereas Ken's just like, feeling it and letting the words kind of come out. And I think that's so crucial to like what I think uh, Weiner wants the show to be. And I think also that's something that Sal can really appreciate and uh, Roach appreciate with Ken's company. I'm just glad that when we opened the show, I was worried that we were going to get to the part where I ask you, Will, what did you think of the episode? How did it strike you? I'm glad you didn't respond. No one's ever asked me that before. Probably because it's none of their business. That would have been a great uh, uh, way to do this episode and then just have like white noise for like yeah, yeah, just play 50, this out. <laughs> 57 minutes or whatever. Uh, yeah, yeah. But oh well. Um, lots of good Burt Cooper moments in this episode. I like the part where he was like, whirly gigs and all. <laughs> um, it's a good episode for him. But he, he, of course, is somebody who is similar to Don, as we, again, this is episode it evokes the episode from season one, I forget which one exactly it was, might have been Babylon, where he tells Don, yes, it was Babylon, because that's the one where he gives Don the bonus, and he tells him that oh. we're very alike, you and I. Oh, speaking no, of, was it Hobo Code? Oh, no, I, I think it was uh, Babylon, but I could be wrong. I just was going to say, speaking of Babylon. It was Hobo got, Code, actually, because oh, okay. Hobo well, Code's the one where he gets the bonus and then gives it to Midge. Well, speaking of Babylon, I just got a notification on my phone via the AMC app that I can buy tickets mm-hmm. now for Babylon. But Will, you already saw Babylon <laughs> on the big screen. Are you going to watch it again? Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> no, but, actually, well, now you mentioned, I don't know, because I, I got to see in Dolby. I, I know you watched it via a DVD screener. So I, I am very curious. Digital screener. Could, well, well, excuse me, your majesty. Uh, <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, no, I'll definitely want to discuss that more when we, we talk about that on Cinemaholics, but that's on the place say that time. Digital, digital tends to be higher quality. Jeez Louise. <laughs> and I know you were giving me a bunch of gruff for watching it on, like, you know, on Key Fob. It's, you know, the Shrek TV or whatever. <laughs> but anyway, yeah, no, uh, like I was saying before, Burt Cooper, he is that he's he's the Ayn Rand type the objectivist, the person who is really only only in it for himself. And as we find out, his main motivation for getting this Rothko is twofold. He wants to gauge the different people in the office, namely the creatives, right? He brings in writers and so forth. With Harry Crane, he just wanted to talk about the TV department. And I think this is our first time where we see Cooper even recognizing the TV department, even though it was discussed in the episode The Benefactor, that Cooper apparently was impressed by Harry Crane making himself or, you know, doing, having a little bit more initiative. And that's why he gets the meeting with Roger, right? So Cooper seems to see himself a little bit in Harry Crane, similar to Don. So I think we're getting the hint a little bit that Bert is looking at, okay, this is our Don Draper for media. That's always been my interpretation because I think Harry Crane very much is sort of like a sweatier version of Don. He's probably the version of Don closer to his first bout in advertising where he's just trying to get ahead. He's trying to find the angle and everything and trying to make sure people like him. The Don we see now is very different, has that mystique. 
But I, I think that there is a little bit of like, there have been some Don and Harry moments where the two have, I think, genuinely bonded. Well, I mean, we did see a little bit of that uh, early Don, like pre uh, him being the Don we know in this flashback. Yeah, and not a good salesman like, back then. Uh, well, I m't mean, you just sweaty. sit in it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he's not quite as sweaty, I guess, as as Harry, but like he is a little less like cocksure, like kind of like you mm-hmm. know, uh, eager to please, but like kind of recognizing that he's selling basically what seems to be like a lemon of a car. And well, just the first scene like, is where he's with Wayne Kirby, right? And Wayne Kirby, played by the actor from Breaking Bad, and plenty of other yeah. things. Oh yeah, he, uh, Elliot Schwartz. Yes, himself. Yes, uh, yeah. Great cameo, and. I think Don sees Wayne Kirby and is like, this is the person I am today, but he might be like, that's why he reflects back on like the person he used to be. And I think that he gets he's a little unsettled by the fact that Wayne Kirby sells cars the way he sells advertising, if you think. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. But I think there's also like just that inherent fear uh, that he, Don, I mean, um, is always going to feel sort of inferior to who he is supposed to be. And that's kind of caked in this episode, this idea of like, he's an imposter walking among these professionals and like having this vivid flashback where it was one of the few times where like one of his worst fears were realized that someone called him out. Like he's not Don Draper. He's an imposter. He has like that kind of deep, uh, seep, uh, imposter syndrome throughout this episode. And, you know, I think that's probably, probably part of the main reason why, um, those kids came back. Cause it's like, He's like trying to sell coffee to a new generation. And he's just like, kids today don't drink coffee, which is such a kind of odd thing to say, thinking about the today and the now. But yeah, this idea that like he's like not really sure how to connect with children, how to make them feel like that this is a product they should consume. And yeah, and then also obviously with this idea that he's getting pushed into this like elite class, uh, you know, with this new folk museum and things like that and, and buying this car, they feel it doesn't quite deserve, doesn't quite have the status for, even though he's pretty well off, we can tell economically at this point. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, just that that's kind of, uh, you know, pushing Don through this episode. And obviously he gets called out at the end, I'll bet not for being an imposter, but rather for, you know, his nefarious deeds with, uh, with Jimmy. But uh, yeah. I think it's all of a piece though. Yeah. I think that... What happens in the end of the episode, I think that's what makes this episode good. It, it all ties together, I think, very elegantly. Because when you really look at what Don did in that affair, he treated that affair with like Bobby and Betty are his possessions. They're his gateways to power. I think there's a lot of this episode saying that like when Bert has that line, philanthropy is the gateway to power. I think Don connects something like philanthropy with the good good, sexy times. And he was able to create that opportunity for, for Jimmy Barrett. And he got something out of it. It was literally philanthropy, wasn't it? And in that sense, the disgusting person he is inside still came out. And I think that's another thing that this episode layers in really well is how his hunt for status is so tied into every single person in this episode trying to achieve something, trying to win out over others using materialism. And every piece of this episode ties into it. Even a lot of the a lot of the ad stuff that happens in this episode, there's a lot of advertising in this episode, which is funny to say for a show like Mad Men. But sometimes we get episodes of Mad Men where we barely have any advertising pitches or talks about what are we going to do. In this episode, we get only a little bit of Peggy, no Pete. But the one major scene we get with Peggy is the pamper scene 
right? And there, even just that one little scene about pampers and like switching from oh, reusable yeah. diapers, right, to um, diapers that you just throw away, tying into the litter thing later, it just only adds and adds and compounds to mm-hmm. what this episode is getting at of people for the price of convenience. You know, they'll pollute, you know, they will spend more money, 10 cents a piece, as Sal says, because it gets them something, right? Yeah. I honestly kind of forgot about the diaper thing until you brought it back up, but uh, I'm glad you did, yeah, because I love Sal's little line, this little pithy line there where he's just like, 10 cents a piece, they try to find a way to reuse or something. I can't remember exactly what the line is, but it was a great Sal line. You'd want to reuse them at 10 cents a piece. But, and of course, the name of the episode, The Gold Violin, the gold violin where Ken says, like, what is it? it's perfect in every way, except it couldn't make music. And that to me is like, it, it yeah. sums up the episode. It's like, it's something you can buy, but what does it really get you? You know, like Jimmy says at the end of the episode, you know, what did you get? Right, Bobby? You know, like plenty of people had that, whatever. And, and so it, it kind of, it kind of likens how to some of these people, these possessions are just a means to an end, you know? And it, like the lighter, where Sal has the lighter from Ken. Uh, that was another thing I thought about opening the episode. Where I was like, oh, oh hey, Will, uh, I'm, I'm missing my lighter uh, that I left at your house yesterday. <laughs> I almost started it with that. That would have been fun. But, yeah, uh, but, uh, but yeah. you don't think Don is also sort of like a golden violin in that sense? Like he is like adopts the image. He's everything like people want from him, like as far as like the aesthetics as a husband, as an ad executive and all this stuff, but he doesn't allow himself to be open emotionally. So therefore he can't really like give himself because he's afraid of give like showing his true self and being revealed as an imposter. And so like, there's like part of him that's like always going to be withholding something and therefore can't really, you know, make that music as it were. I, I mean, I think that that's a valid read, but I look at more as like the gold violin to him is the Cadillac. You know, it's the Rothko painting. It's the lighter. It's it's the possession. It's the skin that he wears that he uses to hide who he really is. And, and I don't know if the episode is really going any further than that. Just because I think what really cinches it for me is the way that the episode starts and the way the episode ends really bookend that thought really well. And obviously what you're saying is true. Yeah. Right? It's not like that. that is his mo he does have that insecurity of like am i good enough who am i and all that but if anything i think maiden form to me was a little bit closer to that read where that was really about like our undergarments you know our black and white personalities and this i think is like the other side of that coin in a sense well it's funny that you uh you kind of mentioned like all these different episodes because i was going to say earlier that uh since you hadn't read the matt solar size uh article this time do you want to guess what word he used to describe this episode what word he used to describe this episode hmm uh carousel i don't know no i mean it's an adjective uh uh i don't know you're gonna have to tell me okay metaphorical he said said this is the first superfluous episode of mad men superfluous yeah which i find really fascinating because like you said i think there's like obviously it's like returning to a lot of themes and like there's kind of these divergent storylines it's like a plot and b plot and c plot and even sort of a d plot going on here but i feel like they all kind of emotionally kind of connect together and even there's an even sort of lyrical quality to them that i feel very is very true to Mad Men. but i found it fascinating that he felt uh it was like all these kind of uh you know all these different 
adject pieces that didn't quite connect together in a harmonious way. Oh, I, I vehemently disagree with that. I think that these episodes connect like a beautiful golden symphony. But sure. least- I'm, I'm more with you on this, to be clear. I'm just that's why I found it fascinating that like when I was reading because I was expecting them to be more uh, open and charitable with the episode, but he was like pretty critical of it. And I was surprised. Yeah, that's surprising for me to hear, because I mean, even the Jane stuff, I think the Jane and Joan entire like that entire segment is so rooted in how people use other people like possessions. They use them as gateways to wealth and power. It ties directly into the the Jimmy stuff. And I think that that's what makes the contrast between all of those, like Don using Betty and Jane using Roger in order to keep her job. It's so different in a specific way to, w- to the way that Sal and Ken don't use each other. They just have a genuine connection. And I think uh, I, I was getting at this earlier, but Brian Batt, has said that he doesn't even think that this this is necessarily like a pining, like, oh, he wants to get it on with Ken. If anything, it's more of like an adolescent sort of crush, you know, where he, like a man crush that I think for Sal, he would obviously like act upon over time or something. But like, it's more of he is connecting with somebody who seems to get him. And Ken is reacting to that because Ken is a guy who's getting shut down by Jane left and right. Good for him, honestly, dodging that bullet and whatnot. But Ken is actually seeing like Sal isn't jealous of him, uh, of being an artist. He respects him. He seems to validate his creativity and is encouraging. And this is like news to Ken. And a lot of the times over this, this series, Will, you said to me, I don't get how you could like Ken Cosgrove. He's a hound. Sure. He's yeah. <laughs> and He's he a bit is, of a chode, I think I've said before. We can fix him, Will. I keep trying to tell you. He's got a sense of soul. I will give you that. Um, but... Yeah, no, I I found the uh, the budding bromance of this episode to be uh, kind of sweet, and you know it's bittersweet, I guess. I'm not sure if it's going to play out later or if it's going to be kind of a standoff little thing that's in this episode. You're not aware of the spinoff where Ken and Sal get married and move oh, to I hope Vermont, so. and oh man, that'd be a, <laughs> I, I would gladly watch it, but um, yeah, I, I, I'm not familiar with this show. Um, yeah, but no, I mean, oh, I think yeah, yeah. I to your point, yeah, I, I do think when um, when Sal says like he understands the piece, I think it's sincere. Like I don't think it's him just like saying that to be flirtatious or to like yeah, you know yeah, get into Ken's pants. Like I think he does kind of understand the the desire that Ken has, like that kind of that need to express himself, but in this kind of constrained field. And that's kind of key too is like the idea of finding art in this kind of capitalistic empire. Like the idea, like seeing this, you know beautiful new age painting in this very, you know, uh, admittedly new age room, but in a very corporate office in a very, you know, business focused place. And this idea that like, yeah, there, there's this idea too, where Bert's kind of like this, this odd duck, uh, being someone who is kind of more of a free spirit in this business world, but he is kind of remote and he is, you know, very business conscious too. And that's something that kind of fuels him in his way but yeah he has that very artistic minded personality something that i think don has to some extent as well but something that he kind of restricts or feels like afraid to express like he's almost sort of embarrassed when he goes to see movies and stuff well the dawn of him is more of like the burke cooper right the mystique the sort of like i'm just in it to win it the dick whitman in him is the artist the person who has that trauma and pain from his past and uses it to create art Right. And that's the 
that to me is the right. compelling sympathy of this tragic character. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's so crucial to his character is that in order to have that true emotion, he has to be himself, but he cannot allow himself to be himself because inherently he'd be an imposter, even though that would be, he could be Batman can't for be all himself. We know, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess so. But I mean, yeah, I mean, it's just like there's the irony there of just like in order to be himself, he can't be himself. In order to not be himself, he has to be himself. So it's like, yeah, this like contradiction and this irony to his character. And we should mention, too, that I think that this is one of those episodes where the even even the camera movements, I, I've noticed season two levels this up a lot. But it, there's such good storytelling happening here with just what the camera chooses to focus on. I love the entire sequence where Ken and Sal and Kitty are together because at the end of it, right, the payoff is that Kitty tells Sal, like, I feel invisible. I feel like like I was trying to insert myself and she feels excluded. And I think sometimes people watch it and are like, well, what are you talking about? You're there. Like, Sal wasn't mean to you. He wasn't bullying you. But if you're really paying close attention to the scene, you'll notice that there are these like extended moments of gesturing where it's just characters drinking something and the camera will literally switch from Ken to Sal, then back to Ken, then back to Sal. And it does this over and over again. And you only see maybe like Kitty's hand coming out of the frame, right? So re if you're really paying close attention to it, if you're just experiencing it, you notice that her feelings are extremely validated. Obviously people watch it too and are like, oh, this is a doomed marriage because obviously Sal he's a homosexual and so he's not going to obviously be the kind of husband that I think Kitty wants necessarily, but obviously he's trying to replicate that. And obviously he can't do it in a subconscious way, right? This sort of thing is going to happen. And I think that's why he's so contrite because he's like, ah, oh, shoot, you know, I, I, yeah. I let it slip. Right. But I mean, you know, in spite of that, like it, the the irony there too is that like he is technically in a healthier marriage than most of the other characters in the show as far as we've seen. Like he is emotionally available. Like he does care. Cleans up the Kitty. kitchen. Yeah. Cleans up the kitchen. Like he's providing in a, in an emotional way as well as like financially. But yeah, it's just like that. You know, uh, that doomed tragedy there is like he does like you said care for Kitty, but he can't be there for her uh, in the true sense because he has to. You know, he's he's playing someone else. He's he's has a facade to make this marriage work. And, you know, subsequently that's doomed to fail in some way or another. Another another uh, intro that I considered doing for this episode, I thought about being all, oh, uh, Mike isn't here. Uh, so we won't be able to talk to him. I'm glad we don't live in the olden days when he was on the show. And that was too mean. I, lo I love Sally's delivery of that line. Also, if you notice her playing checkers, um, yeah. she's not playing checkers, right? It's kind of like no. the pinochle thing. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think, doesn't Don even say something about that? Like, at one point, he's just like, like what are you doing? And, like, kind of oh, calling her like, out. You want to play checkers instead of my look at the clouds game? Right. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. I mean, you did kind of bring up Jane. I, I don't want to um, kind of short change that because I think there are some interesting things to explore there controversial uh, character people really don't like jane they're not really people look okay. at jane and they're like she's a pain you think she's more controversial than um bobby and jimmy less controversial than them but definitely like one of those season two characters people are like oh i don't like her she's mean um joan should have won this whole conflict um because i was gonna ask like is this are, are we gonna see those three characters after this because there is a, a, a sense of 
at least somewhat finality for like Jimmy and, and Bobby. It's been uh, a guess. Okay. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I, I, they extended their welcome farther than I expected. Subsequently, I wasn't really sure how long Jane was supposed to be a part of the season. If she's supposed to be kind of a key factor of just someone that's like, you know, kind of in and out. And obviously there, there was sort of an out for her in some respects here. And then they kind of, uh, move away from that in this episode. So I guess I'm asking you questions. I mean, I'm not going to give anything away. Mr. Right? <laughs> I mean, I'm not, gonna, I'm not just going to tell uh, you. I'm, but, I'm, yeah. I'm interested that you have this in your mind. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, people Jane. don't like Jane. She's petulant. Yeah. Sure. But I mean, there is something, yeah, like you were kind of alluding to the idea that like who gets invited into the room and like how they get invited and like this idea of like the Don, even though he's like, among the elite, like he doesn't feel like he belongs there, whether it's that party or the idea of, like him being in that meeting with Roger and Bert. And then there's, you know, Jane, who is like leading the brigade to go into Bert's office and like, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like, I like uh, how know, he's like, it's like we're skinny dipping. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, like they kind of treat this office as if it's like some sort of like, uh, you know, taboo center, which I guess it sort of is. But like. Um, yeah, like that Jane of all people, like I felt like it was almost sort of, uh, uh, surprising when she did that. Cause I, I, w- I felt like from when we were seeing her before, she didn't really have that initiative in her. Like she seemed kind of more complacent, I guess, when she was in the office. And so I was a little taken surprised by her like gun ho desire to be like, yes, let's go into Bert's office. Let's do this. And I don't know. Did you feel a little she's getting rash? She, no, she's getting comfortable, right? She started to feel a little bit secure well, in her job. I think that's why she, we see that whole scene where she she's letting Roger flirt with her mm-hmm. in a way that she doesn't let other characters flirt with her. Sure. Because I think she's starting to feel like, all right, you know, I kind of got this uh, really important guy, obviously, in my corner. You know, I kind of got him wrapped around my finger, like that kind of thing. And I think that's why she kind of reacts the way she does when Joan is sort of reprimanding her, right? And yeah. she's like... I You're not my mother. mother. Yeah, there, there it is. I'm yeah. 20 years old. Yeah, yeah, and no, yeah, no. I mean, that's why I find fascinating. There's like in this episode, at least, there's a sort of like entitlement from her that we haven't quite seen from her before, where she feels like this kind of like she's not only amongst the group, but she feels like she's owed something more than she's been given. And is who willing- does that remind you of, Mister Will? Uh, who does that remind you of from this episode? Somebody we haven't talked about much at all. Uh, Pete Campbell. That's right. Duck Phillips. Yeah, Duck Phillips. (laughs) But yeah, Duck Duck in this episode, he is somebody who feels like he deserves more than he's getting. There's the whole thing you even mentioned who gets invited into the room. Jane invites herself into Cooper's office, but who doesn't get invited into Cooper's office? That would be Duck when Cooper invites uh, Don Draper, right? Tells him, gives him the whole speech. You're going to be wearing your tuxedo a lot more, like that whole thing. And Duck obviously has that look on his face of like, I've been working Martinson's coffee. Uh, sorry, Martinson coffee. I've been obviously just uh, working, right? He went bird watching with the guy. Yeah, I think just Martinson. They said they changed. That's the, what I'm the saying. Name. Yeah, yeah. I only I said I think Martinson's. They the- I, yeah. Well, I, yeah, they, I said Martinson's. And then I was like, no, it's Martinson. Right. There you go. I said it. You just didn't hear it. You heard what you wanted to hear. That's for sure. But yeah, no, Duck doesn't get credit for the Martinson thing at all. Don does. And the way that Duck kind of looks at him, you know who else it reminds me of? This is why this episode is good. Reminds me of Jimmy Barrett. 
been standing behind guys like that my whole life. And you can see the resentment that Duck has for Don, the resentment that Jimmy has for Don. It's the, the image that Don projects. And that's why it makes him so uncomfortable because he's like, I'm not really that guy. <laughs> I'm just kind of putting it on. But yeah. honestly, he is that guy too. And that's something I also wanted to ask you about, which is that Jimmy is sort of uh, infatuated with Betty in this episode. Yes. Um, in a way that I felt like when they were flirting – uh, in that previous episode, was that the benefactor where they were kind of flirting, having that little like romantic, uh, you know, back and yes. forth? Um, it, it struck me as more kind of like impulsive. Like it, it just like he, like I didn't, in that episode, I didn't get the sense that he was like in love with Betty. Like it was just kind of more just like, hey, Bobby, here's Bobby pretty- says that for Don to work, Jimmy, Jimmy has to think he has a shot with your wife. That's what she sure. says. Yeah. But um, but yeah, I guess yeah. For me, I just felt like is that crush that he's kind of developing on her more driven by his like instant infatuation with her, or more no. that he like sees Dawn with Bobby, and like even though like he he doesn't really seem like he had that much like jealousy for Bobby's previous. I mean, we haven't really seen Bobby's previous lovers so far as we can tell, but it didn't seem like he had that jealousy, but we're also kind of going off of what Bobby said. And so there, there could have been some burning resentment that we just didn't well, see. She has kids and it's kind of, right. I think it's subtly implied that they're not Jimmy's, but right. Yeah. No, he says it in the episode. What he's trying to do here is he is trying to have power over Don in the way he thinks he can. He used Don in order to get the show. And uh, all along, I think his whole thing is he knows that Jimmy and or he knows that Don and Bobby are doing what they're doing. I think there have been hints about this over the course of the season. I think when Don leaves her tied up in the hotel room, that probably mm-hmm. confirmed it. But sure. well, also that uh, the episode when Jimmy goes to confront uh, Don, he yes. has like the arm in the sling too. Exactly, and I think this is Jimmy's way of using women as in a materialistic way as a way for power to get back at Don because he has a grudge against people like Don. And I think him being able to cuckold Don is his way of kind of just satisfying his own ego, honestly. And it, I think that he even kind of senses that when he's like, if you want to step out, fine, you know, don't do it with another man's wife. He was trying to do that. He's obviously a hypocrite. He's trying to sort of get his revenge in that way. But I think that that ultimately is what ties to this episode. That's right. I'm confused why the site said it's superfluous. Does he mean? Because like I don't see how this episode could be looked at as redundant or filler or anything. It really drives the plot forward. Well, you'll because have to he tells what Betty. He... Sure. I'm just Definitely curious don't. what his thinking is there because this is such a pivotal moment when obviously like the look on Betty's face when Jimmy tells her. Like, oh, what do you what do you think happened between them? Because there's this moment where it's clear to me that he he kind of figures out like, okay, I'm not going to be able to sleep with Betty. Like, she's not really kind of receiving my advances. And I think he's smart enough to realize, well, if I can't get with her, I'm going to mess up his marriage. Right. And I think that that's that's kind of his thinking there is he's like, all right, mutually assured destruction because he doesn't care, you know, what happens with him and Bobby as much. Oh, yeah. And I think he feels that they're kind of more secure, I guess. Like, they just have this kind of weird sure. understanding with one another. But, yeah, I mean, it also is, like, I think he even alludes to the idea that, like, he would only be in that room because of his comedy. Like, the idea that, like, his motor mouth is, like, the one power that he has. And whether he's going to use it for good or for ill, he's going to use it to, 
push himself up the social stratosphere or to stick at the people that are, you know, directly interfering with his personal and, and professional life. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, a lesser show would have had when, uh, when Betty's just like, I don't like what you're saying. He should have been like, take it from a nut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, and you know, I, I think there's other examples that like too, like, I feel like, uh, going back to the Sal Kitty thing, like a lesser show would have had, you know, Sal be more kind of resentful of Kitty or like, you know, maybe being more like cold and alien with her. But like it's clear that they have like a, a very uh, emotional relationship. It's just not a very physical uh, or you know sexual one, so far as we can tell. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I think as far as the the Betty Dawn stuff is concerned, I, I really do love that this last scene is is the way it is, and just the idea of her, you know, throwing up symbolically means that she's like kind of ruining the the new car smell, kind of mm-hmm. like you know like uh, destroying this like kind of. Uh, image that Dawn has been trying to create but knows is kind of a lie in some ways and yeah no, I think that's all that's all fun I, I also just think it's always good to end on a good puke joke uh, <laughs> yeah yeah, thought, it's, yeah. A, it's a nice nice little zinger at the end especially when earlier in the episode right she's like hey want to take it for around the block and he's just mm-hmm. like not in the car it's yeah. like bro bro sure come on <laughs> but uh, yeah yeah great episode great episode yeah, I think it's just one of those ones where I just think everything's working really well. The script is super tight. It's just, it's just quite good. I really like the, the script is tight. Yeah. I think it's, it's good. Tight, I think, tight. I feel like it's like a little, like as much as I like the episode, I feel like the script is kind of like, cause you know, there's four writers involved and feel and Weiner's one of them. And it kind of feels like, maybe this was one of those, I don't know how they write the show, but I did kind of get the sense. This was one where it's like, they had, you know, like when they map out the season, there's like things they want to do with certain characters. And this one kind of felt like, okay, like this is our time to do this, 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 and this. Like, here's our moment to kind of do a little bit more of Sal. Here's some time we can do with Jane. And it's like, how can we kind of put all these things together? And they had this umbrella with like the imposter syndrome and stuff like that. And it's like, okay, we can all kind of fit these little eggs in this basket in this episode. And I don't think it makes it super tight, but I think it makes it very compelling in a thematic way. I but. think it makes it super tight because I think they did it really well. And obviously lots of episodes of Mad Men are designed that way, right? And it, it's one of those episodes where I think that it's it has both setups and payoffs, which I always appreciate. I like those episodes because I don't like it when it's all set up. I don't love it when it's all payoff. I like it when there's a nice balance between the two. And so that's why I think that it's just like it's really well-rounded. Maybe that's like kind of more what i'm getting at it has like a little bit of everything that uh, i personally like about the show so uh yeah i think it's one of the stronger ones this season did you have thoughts yeah. though, will on the the woman at the beginning because you know like who's oh, who she was yeah what uh, are you thinking i mean my initial guess is that it is the real don draper's wife or widow uh or like a sister okay. Or like maybe a cousin or something, like someone, or like maybe a close friend, like someone that knew Don intimately and like saw that, like, hey, John Draper is selling, uh, you know, cars at this dealership and stuff. He's like, could it be my Don's back? <laughs> and you know, I mean, I'm writing uh, down what you're saying. Yeah, I'm writing down Will's guess. She is close to the real Don Draper. That's your guess. Or like, or it could have just been like a classmate or something that like knew that uh, or had heard, you know, like hadn't seen Don in a while and like, 
you know, wanted to check that out. I did like that to make John Hamm look younger. They just poofed his hair up instead of like flicking it back. <laughs> yeah, it's it's like kinda, yeah. I, I think it's funny that in your eyes that she, <laughs> a classmate of Don Draper would try to find it. Man, that must be close classmates, man. Yeah, you know, this would be the 50s. So I don't know. Maybe things were different back then. I don't know what they were like. All right. Well, I just wanted to make sure we kept a record of your, your guesses, predictions and whatnot. Um, any other thoughts before we go to trivia? I'm trying I'll to think. I mean, I think a... Well, I'm trying to think. I mean, I don't know. If it, I feel like there's something we didn't discuss, like something that happened, like a key thing that happened here that we, we kind of brushed We didn't over. talk about the jingle as much. I mean, I talked about it at the very beginning. Yeah. Um, we, but I, I think that that's pretty self-explanatory. Bit. Like, yeah, it ties into the whole episode. It's like, oh, we don't want to be talked to. If you're going to sell us something, you know, it has to be a mood of feeling. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that kind of ties to the Jane stuff, too, where it's like this younger guard of, uh, you know, a new generation coming in from the 60s, kind of like feeling like they they have a way of doing it that's different. Certainly, like Jane kind of feels like she's a little bit more entitled to what she's gotten than her status is at this point. Um, and obviously, that's the case with Pete, though he isn't in this episode as much, which is kind of fascinating. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if I have much more to add to the that whole thing other than that. I did like that. um uh peggy seemed a little kind of enthusiastic about it i was kind of expecting her to be like annoyed or like uh thinking this is kind of like beneath their status but she seemed kind of into it which is fun yeah that's that, that seems like peggy to me you know it stays with you uh, i think that she likes a good tune you know we saw her dance the twist you know she she has fun with music it's a way to peggy's heart um okay let's do trivia here not a lot for this episode just a few couple things um so he, uh, the rothko painting the uh which by the way i think that it's funny when sal says why oh it's a rothko why didn't dale say that because dale doesn't know that <laughs> like sal come on because it's dale like he doesn't even know how to tie his shoes uh but anyway cooper says he spent ten thousand dollars or i think harry crane somebody said that it was ten thousand dollars and so in today's numbers that's that's a lot that's that's getting close to almost like ninety thousand dollars for a painting um, what, what do you think of that? Well, a $90,000 painting, would you go there? Would you do it? Uh, I mean, I can't, I don't, <laughs> I don't have that means to do that if I wanted to. <laughs> also, uh, okay. So this episode won an enemy an Emmy can't talk for outstanding hairstyling for a single camera series, which is interesting because of Don's poofed up hair. That, that was whoa who's this young buckshot oh, it's the same guy i'll be Wait, dilly darn day impossible <laughs> give them an emmy gosh dang yeah it was an instant emmy uh also okay this is a fun one when don is pitching martin some coffee on their new campaign he references how there have been previous attempts for coffee companies to appeal to the youth market using puppets and so forth so a lot of people have speculated that this is a reference to when jim henson before he of course would go on to do the muppets sesame street and all that he did a series of commercials for for a coffee based company uh, or a dc based coffee company called wilkins coffee so two early versions of the muppets were used to sell the product and yeah, I know that it's a it's one of those like weird time capsules. Uh, if you look up the those commercials, uh, they they're very very surprisingly modern for 1950s era advertising. I recommend looking into it. 
And the last thing I have here. Uh, oh, you have some? Yeah, I mean, well, I was going to say, I, I don't know if I've seen those ones, but I definitely have seen some of the more kind of avant-garde stuff that Jim Henson did prior to the Muppets. And it's a trip. I mean, I definitely recommend it. They're all, maybe not all of them, but a lot of them are on YouTube and well worth the, a time capsule to explore those little piece of oddities. Agreed, agreed. I mean, maybe one day people will look at the podcast that we have done. It's like, man, before John and Will, you know, started that children's broadcasting company on PBS, they were they were talking about movies and TV shows. Whoa, what a time capsule. Okay. Last piece of trivia here. The group that the students for a democratic society that uh, Kurt brings up, right? Uh, he said he wrote... Oh, yeah. Okay. So the group, the Students for a Democratic Society, that is referenced by Kurt and Smith, wrote the original Port Huron statement, which was referenced in The Big Lebowski. So I wasn't sure if you caught that. Uh, oh, I yeah. You're, I was gonna, you're a fan. Literally, oh. I was just about to mention that. I was pulling up a note about it because I was looking up things I forgot to talk about. I was like, oh, yeah, that's right. Because I was going to say, yes. yeah, because they were reading from uh, the first, not the second uh, draft of the statement to quote The Big Lebowski. Or paraphrase it. Yes. Uh, yes, yeah. But um, yeah, I was delighted by that. It's such a great inclusion in the episode, too. An episode that's all about the hollowness of advertising and consumerism. So yeah, nice little addition there. But also it- like the idea of like taking something artistic and meaningful and applying it to consumerism and capitalism. Yes. So. Well, that's, that's what I think that's what I think helps the show sort of like maintain its credibility. Because sometimes people watch it and I think they they misinterpret it or they have their own interpretation, whatever you want to say of, Oh, the show is glorifying this sort of thing and not really poking holes at it, which I think is nonsense. I think the show is extremely critical of the American dream and consumerism materialism. I don't even think it's under the surface. I think that most of the time it's like right there, like over, it's not subtext. It's just the text of the show that this, this whole rampant consumerism is just killing these characters. Right, which I always find fascinating, like the idea that this was on a station that had commercials. So just like I can't imagine, like that's, what it's like. That's a thing. That's what people people will just kind of like their surface level things. Just like, oh, this show is problematic because, like, they it's the kind of person who says something is romanticizing something if it depicts it, right? Sure, but no, just the idea of just like how cynical it is about this capitalistic idea of advertisement. And then like, you'd get like an ad for like Swiffer wipes or something. And it's just like, yeah. well, there were or moments like, when the show would literally do, they would show ads on AMC that were in the Mad Men like format. So okay. like they would, and you wouldn't even know it was a commercial at first. It would be like two characters in the break room talking about like, you know, Oh my gosh, this new dove soap. Mm. And then you realize, Oh, we're in a commercial break. You know, it just sort of like, it transitioned from the show into a Mad Men commercial with the same like characters. Hmm. They did it a bunch of times. Oh, that's and fascinating. So, that's cool. Yeah. But when I first learned of the show, uh, was that way because I was aware of the show, but the first time I ever started to like experience it at all was when we were learning about this stuff. And this is when I was in college. And so like we were, we had advertising classes and hmm. you know, when we saw this at the, one of those ads first, I think it was dove, uh, the, it was like the first thing I ever saw from Mad Men, actually. Mm. Okay, cool. Yeah, and it was yeah. that and the carousel pitch. Those were the two big things. Yeah, and you saw that and you're like, one day I'm going to have a podcast with some guy You'll named see. Will Ashton and Mike Overhost and talk all about this show. 
That's right. That's right. And you guys were like, you guys were still in Pampers diapers at that point. Um, <laughs> all right. Well, let's do it for Mad Men. Uh, we miss Mike Overholz. We can't wait to have him back. We'll uh, we'll drag him to the show, kicking and screaming if we have to. But uh, yeah, no, he's just really sick, and so hopefully he recovers yeah. soon. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going on with him, but I hope he gets better. I hope he's on the mend. Um, I hope it's not the like... show that's making him sick, right? <laughs> uh, no, I, maybe not. I don't know. We've been you've been jealous because Mike and I have been having our own separate conversations about uh, the the White Lotus, which is going on yeah, now. You're having obviously. real Sal and Ken moments over there talking yeah, about exactly, White Lotus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Kitty, um, just yeah. being like, "Am I invisible? Do you even yeah. see me, <laughs> Will Vitor?" <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, you're more than welcome to watch the show. I mean, at the time we are recording this, uh, the season two finale is going to drop uh, a few days from now, but I don't have um, time. It's we're in the middle of voting for critics choice. I have sure. to watch as much as I can because we're doing nominations. So I'm I get in movie it. You, have, you have priorities. I get it. <laughs> so passive aggressive. It's I like, oh, it. you care about other things besides me. That's what it is. Sure, yeah, yeah, I get it. No, I get it. I get it. <laughs> All right, well, we'll be back for next week's episode of Mad Men Men. Thank you, as always, for listening. And uh, yeah, on to the next pitch. All right.